The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, let's turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. This morning in Sunday school, we took Malachi 2, 10 to 16. Tonight, we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, 4, which is the next disputation. Malachi two seventeen. you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say... Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to Yahweh offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh as in the days of old and as in former years." The book of Malachi has some very strong passages in it, but ultimately the book of Malachi is a book of hope. But the hope that comes to us through the book of Malachi comes to us through God's plan for the future. The hope does not come through the priests. The hope does not come through the piety of the people. The hope comes through God and God alone and what he has in store for us in the future. And in fact, the book of Malachi is a great reminder to us that the basis of all authentic hope is always, always in what God is going to do, never in what we have done or what we are planning to do. In chapter 2, verse 17, we have some false charges against God. And it starts continuing this uh, disputation pattern. God makes an assertion, you've wearied Yahweh with your words, yet you say, and here's their disputation, how have we wearied him? And then God says, in that you say, and then they say three things. In verse 17, the people continue their false charges against God. You might remember a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 1, that the people had a fundamental problem with God. That is, they assumed that God was not keeping his promise because the Edomites were actually living in their neighborhoods and the Edomites God had promised to wipe out and they just assumed that God was not doing what God said he was going to do. And so God says, I have loved you and they retort, how have you loved us? You're not keeping your word to us. How is that love? And here again, God says, you are wearying me with your words and they turn around and retort, how are we wearying you with our words? It's an amazing statement, isn't it? You are wearying the Lord with your words. What's amazing about it is that God doesn't get tired. 
God is infinite. God is perfect. God is inexhaustible. Think of that word for a second, inexhaustible. You cannot exhaust the infinite, eternal God. He says so in Isaiah chapter 40. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow tired. But on two occasions, at least that I know of in the scripture, he says he wearies of something. In Isaiah chapter 43, he is wearied by his people's sins. And here in this text, he is wearied by their words, and their words are false notions about him. The people come back with this reply, how have we wearied you? And this question, how have we wearied you, is not an authentic question in the sense of actually seeking an answer. You make the assertion that we have wearied you. Please explain to us because we're very curious about how we're doing this. That's not the case at all. Nor is it even a question of doubt. You have wearied me with your words. Really? How have we wearied you with our words? I'm not sure about that. That's not the case either. This retort is a flat-out denial of what God has just said. It is an expression of obstinance. It's an expression of a denial of the charge. You have wearied me. How have we wearied you? There is something about it that comes out that is defiant, not submissive to God. God, in essence, then gives the three false charges that have wearied him, things that the people have said over and over and over again. And before we look at the three things in particular, let's just simply make a note here. Saying things about God that aren't true wearies him. God desires to be glorified above all else. And one of the absolute prerequisites to glorifying God is to have right thoughts about God. To have wrong thoughts about God, to have low thoughts of God, to have unworthy notions of God is displeasing to God. And he says, frankly, the false ideas, the misrepresentations about me are wearing me out. It's almost as if God is saying, I am sick and tired of being on the front of your national inquirers. Your assertions about me, which are completely false, flat out wear me out because what I want from you is right thinking about me. This is, by the way, why God responds in in the manner that he does in the book of Job. Job had misrepresented God. Job's three friends had misrepresented God. And by the end of the book of Job, God had had it. What were the actual false charges? There are three of them if you break it down. The first is this. Those who do evil are good in the Lord's sight. The people were saying something akin to Yahweh's opinion about bad people is that they're actually good. Now, now it is, in all likelihood, this was not some sort of theological statement that people were making. But rather, it was an emotional, a visceral response reacting to what they were seeing around them. The same kind of visceral, emotional response that you have, for instance, in Psalm 73 or the book of Habakkuk. It's the kind of response that says, God isn't doing what he said he was going to do for the righteous, and he isn't doing to the wicked what he said he was going to do to the wicked. You know what must really be at work here? God must really think that the wicked are good. 
The next false charge goes even beyond that. He delights in them. He delights in them. God actually winks at their sin and blesses them anyway in spite of their wickedness. And in fact, that that really is um, a a dilemma that you face as you read your Bible. That's the part of the dilemma of Job, right? Job's a righteous person, and, and, and it seems as if God is mistreating him. And yet, as Job looks around, the, the wicked are getting off scot-free, and in fact are getting blessed. That seems to be the problem in Psalm 73 as well. Asaph is wrestling with the fact, I have absolutely kept my ways pure in vain. I look at the wicked, and they get fatter and fatter. By the way, that was a good thing. Uh, two millennia ago. They get fatter and fatter. Their eyes bulge. They're rich. They have no problems. Look at me. I'm trying to serve God, trying to do the right thing. This is all for nothing. That's the people's complaint. God's upside down in his ethics. And he's actually delighting in people he should be angry with. And of course, you know what the corollary is. That he's not treating us, his friends, a little better. And in fact, the sentiment in Malachi's day could have been something like this. You know, God would have more friends if he just treated the ones that he had a little better. But look around. Look at what's happening. None of the blessings are flowing. God's not doing for us what we think he ought to do. And then the final question, where is the God of justice? There's this, there's this cry of, of self-righteous indignation. Where is the God of justice? As we look around and see all of this, as we see the wicked prospering and Edomites everywhere. We're up to our armpits in Edomites and God said he was going to wipe them out. Where is the God of justice? Now nobody, or very few people at least, are crass enough to actually express those kinds of unworthy notions about God. But let's face it, every once in a while, those kinds of thoughts do creep into our own thinking, don't they? You see an abominable child molester go free. You don't say it out loud. But you think, where is the God of justice? You go to work, and there's a guy that you know is not faithful to his wife, and he cheats on his income tax, and yet he gets the promotion, and you don't. And what creeps up in your heart is, where is the God of justice? That's where these people were at, but there's a special irony as they begin to articulate these things. The questions manifest the fact that they had become cynical, judging God by what they had seen. Remember, the temple had been rebuilt, but the kingdom hadn't come. The blessings weren't flowing. That's what they were expecting God to do. But the self-deceit in these questions is absolutely staggering. When they say, those who do good, or those who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? There is a self-deceit in those questions that should be absolutely staggering to us. Because the people that are asking the questions are the very ones that that God has just castigated 
for divorcing their wives in order to marry foreign women of foreign gods in order to make their life a little easier. The people that are asking the questions are covenant breakers. The people that are asking the questions are defiant against God. And yet that itself is the very hypocrisy of sinners, is it not? Sinners are always inconsistent. The thief is outraged when his car gets stolen. The cheater is offended when somebody cheats him. The liar is insulted when he's lied to. But that's the inconsistency of sinners. The expectation of sinners is characteristically hypocritical. Walt Kaiser makes this statement somewhat humorously. He says, their punchline is this, where is the God of justice anyway? It is as if they are saying, God must love wicked people because he made so many of them. And then Kaiser says, but these crybabies will find out soon enough that God means business with evildoers just as he means business with people who complain about them and in effect hide behind them to vindicate their own evil deeds. And so that frames up the prophecy as it were. Here are the people they are distorting God's character, because of unmet, unsatisfied expectations. It was a state of self-delusion as it questioned the very justice of God, and it frames the messianic promise and prophecy of Malachi chapter 3. And the prophecy that is about to come really does show how God is indeed the God of justice and how God is going to bring justice, but he's going to do it in a way that they would never expect. That's the biblical pattern, by the way. Just when you think you know what God ought to do, he will do something, but not in the way that you think it ought to be done. And so God responds. Here's God's answer, the messenger of the covenant. You want justice, God says, here it is. This is what I'm going to do. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. God says, here's my answer. Here's how I'm going to bring about justice. I'm going to send my messenger. From reading your New Testaments, you know that to be John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He's going to come and he's going to be my messenger. He's going to come before me and he's going to actually clear the way before me. Now, Isaiah, some two centuries before Malachi, had made a very similar prophecy. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, where he's going to send his messenger before his face to make the straight, the paths of the Lord. When you get to the New Testament, the Isaiah 43 through 5 passage and the Malachi 3 1 passage usually are brought together in Matthew chapter 3, in Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, and John chapter 1, all brought together. And it's very important that you see that the prophecy relates to John the Baptist who is coming to make straight the paths of Yahweh. He's preparing the path for, for who? For Yahweh. 
That's what Malachi 3.1 says. He's coming to prepare his way, my way. God is talking. You, you get to Isaiah 40, and it's Yahweh. He's going to come and make the path straight for Yahweh. And, of course, John the Baptist is the forerunner for Jesus, which means Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. And so here's the passage, and God says he's going to make my path clear. He's going to clear out the obstacles. And so here's John the Baptist comes on the scene. And how does he start to clear the way? How does he start to make preparation? It is not through revolution. It is not through revolt. It's not through rebellion. It's not through turning uh, the world upside down. Through political maneuvering. Here's how he comes to make the preparation for the Lord. He preaches repentance. He preaches repentance. And so the preparation for the way of the Lord is the preaching of repentance. And then notice, and the Lord, that's the, the Hebrew word is Adon. And the Adon, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says Yahweh of hosts. God says, I'm going to send my messenger. And then he says, and the Adon, whom you seek, is going to come to his temple. Now, by the way, just that little expression, whom you seek, could it be understood in a few different ways? It could be understood as sarcastic. If, if the prophet is directing his words to the complainers of verse 17, then the idea would be, you who really say that you want to see the day of the Lord and you want to see God come, oh, he's coming all right. He's coming to his temple. The one that you're seeking, now, they're not really seeking, their hearts aren't really right, but they're the kind of people that are sitting there doing their own thing, living their own life, and they happen to see people that they don't like, usually fits into a few different categories of sin, and they say to themselves, boy, I wish Jesus would come back right now and straighten out this whole mess, not even realizing that they're part of the mess that would necessarily need to be straightened out. And so it could be a sense of sarcasm, or it could be directed towards the remnant. Remember, there is this faithful remnant who actually was seeking the Lord and awaiting for the return of Messiah. But the idea is, is that Adon, God, the Lord, is coming, the one that you seek. And then Malachi tells us, and he's suddenly going to come to his temple. Now, the one being prophesied here is, is God himself, right? He's Adon, and he comes to his temple. Who owns the temple? Well, it's God's temple. And in the fullness of time, when God sends forth his son into this world, he suddenly appears at the temple. He appears, first of all, as a helpless baby to be circumcised on the eighth day. Adon comes and suddenly appears at the temple to be circumcised in observance of the law of God. But then some 33 years later, he would come again. And he would come back to that temple, and he would come to that temple in a way that would symbolize judgment and cleansing, 
When Jesus comes to the temple and he makes a a whip and he goes in and he overturns the money changers' tables and he drives them out. And we call that event the cleansing of the temple. It is a portent of the judgment to come. Messiah has come to his temple. The Lord has come to his temple to do his business. And thus he cleanses his temple in Matthew chapter 21. The prophecy goes on. It says the messenger of the covenant is coming. Adon will come to his temple. And then you could translate it like this. Even the messenger of the covenant. The Lord, that is the Adon, is the messenger of the covenant. And as we go and read our Bibles carefully, we read our New Testaments, we realize the message of the covenant. That language, the covenant, is a reference to the single redemptive plan of God, which is unfolded through a succession of covenants of promise throughout redemptive history. It finds its climax, it finds its culmination in none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is himself the messenger of the covenant. He comes as the mediator of the new covenant. He comes as the communicator, the executor, the administrator, and the consummator of that new covenant. Jesus is the Adon who comes to his temple, who is also the messenger of the covenant. One of the things that we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, what we've seen so far, what are are the three words? Jesus is better. When we get to the covenant, we're going to find out that Jesus has enacted a better covenant based on better promises, and he is the mediator, therefore, of a better covenant. And so here's the messenger of the covenant who comes and notice again, in whom you delight, again, probably sarcastic, perhaps a little hypocritical. You think you're you're going to delight, but this is not going to be as pleasant as you think. Oftentimes when we want God to do something, oftentimes when we want God to act, oftentimes when we pray prayers like, God, grow me, God, I hope you don't pray like this. God, test me. God, make me more patient. Make me a better Christian. God, do this. God, do that. God works. But his work is not usually pleasant. When God grows us, it is not usually a pleasant experience. Growing pains, chastisement, the work of God, as we're going to see, refiner's fire. When God comes, we may say how much we delight in God's work in our lives, but there is an element where even though we say that, there is also the realization that it is not always a pleasant work. Sometimes it is painful. And so God says, you want justice, you want to see the God of justice, here's what I'll do. Here's what I'll do. I'm going to come. And I'm going to come to my temple. 
And I'm going to come as the messenger of the covenant. I'm going to come in the person of my son. The covenant God keeps his promises. The covenant God is coming. And so get ready. Now, remember, in the Old Testament prophetic perspective, there, a lot of times there is no distinction between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Many times those are, are put together, so it looks like a mountain range, and in reality there's a vast distance between the mountains, but from a distance they look like they're the same. That's what the, you're going to have in Malachi 3 and 4. Malachi is going to prophesy of our Lord's first advent and his second advent. Here it is his first advent that is in view, and notice how he describes the coming of our Lord. Verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? You want him to show up? You want him to come? You want him to appear? And here God says is the reality. Once he comes, who in the world will be able to endure the day of his coming? Who will be able to stand when he appears? Now understand that when when Jesus comes into the world the first time, he comes as the helpless babe of Bethlehem, but he doesn't stay the helpless babe of Bethlehem. He grows up into a man who is the living word of God. And if there was anything that Jesus did, Jesus did not come in his first appearing to bring bring immediate judgment on people. The Son of God, God did not send his uh, Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. And so his first appearing was for salvation, Hebrews 9 tells us. He will appear a second time without reference to sin for judgment. But make no mistake, when Jesus came into this world, it is not as if you had this really amiable hippie that everybody liked. Jesus' very presence, Jesus' very existence made people uncomfortable except for those who were willing to embrace the forgiveness that would come through him. Everybody else, who could stand, who could endure his presence? The Pharisees sent people to Jesus one time. We want you to check out what he's saying. And in fact, if it gets a little too out of hand, we want you to bring him back to us. And they go and they return. And here was their report. Never did a man speak like this man speaks. In the humble carpenter of Nazareth was a man of immense power and confrontation. That's what Jesus was about. That's what Jesus is about. Jesus is is a wonderful, merciful Savior. He is gentle, but He's gentle with people who acknowledge their sin. He's gentle with people who are repentant and humble in heart. Those who rail against God, those who, who want to stand against God, those who want to assert their rights against God. Jesus is not some sissified hippie. He is the Lion of Judah. Who can endure his coming? You might remember even in the book of the Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, the sixth seal. People are crying out for the rocks to fall on them to save us from, mixed metaphor, the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. Who can endure his coming. Nobody. That's the answer. Nobody. 
If he's coming in justice, no one can stand. If he's coming, even the complainers, especially the complainers, won't be able to stand. If you're sitting here tonight and you're a pretty self-righteous person, and you think the best thing in the world that could happen for this world to straighten it out is if Jesus would just come back and take care of business, let me just remind you that when he comes back, you're going to fall on your face like a dead man. Who can endure his coming? No one. No one. No one. Is that the Christ that you know? Or do you have this sentimentalized, romanticized idea about some helpless little Jewish baby in a manger that comes out about once a year? The Christ of the Bible is the one of whom it is said, who can endure his coming? It goes on, it says, he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Refiner's fire, how does God identify himself in Deuteronomy 4.24? Our God is a consuming fire, repeated again in Hebrews 12.29. Our God is a consuming fire, a fire that devours, a fire that consumes. Here, Messiah is a refiner's fire. In the Bible, fire is a separating agent. It separates the dross, leaving behind that which is desired leaving behind that which is valuable. And so you would, you would take precious metals and you would, you would take them through the refiner's fire and the dross was separated from, from that which was desired to be left behind. And the Bible says that Jesus, when he comes, he's going to be the refiner's fire. And then he also says, a fuller's soap. Well, if you know anything about soap, perhaps you've watched the History Channel and saw the episode on the history of soap. You'll know that in the 5th century B.C., they didn't have soap. They used lye. Lye was also a separating agent. Used to separate the dirt and the filth and the grime from the cloth. But both images actually communicate something about our Lord. The refiner's fire, the fuller, or the launderer's lie, L-Y-E. That's what Messiah's like. There's a, there's a separating power that Messiah brings. The, he, he is the separating agent. Now, now, here's the glorious thing. The refiner's fire is not to destroy. It's to refine. It's to purify. It's to cleanse. If he wanted, he could be a consuming fire that consumes the adversaries. And that's what he will do in his second advent. But in his first advent, he is the refiner's fire who comes to refine and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's what the first advent is all about. And so, how does that fire happen? We read in 1 Peter, for instance, that our faith is tried as by fire. 
He takes the fire of affliction. He takes the sanctifying fire of His own grace. And then Malachi tells us that He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. That is the idea, is there He is ruling over His people. And so we sing this. I wonder if we really realize what we sing from time to time. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Then the text tells us he'll purify the sons of Levi. There's anything clear in the book of Malachi so far, it's that the sons of Levi desperately need purification. They are the rotten priests of chapter 1, verses 6 and following, the ones who are self-serving, offering up lame and blind and diseased sacrifices to the Lord. And when Messiah comes, he will purify the sons of Levi. What's interesting is that as you read the book of Acts, on two different occasions, it says, and many of the priests obeyed. Uh, uh, obeyed or believed, becoming obedient to the faith. As the gospel goes forth in Jerusalem, in the book of Acts, a whole host of priests actually are coming into the faith, into the church, believing in Jesus. But there's something more than just the conversion of Levitical priests in the first century. If you're in Christ... You are a priest. You are a part of that kingdom of priests that he has made for himself. One of the most wonderful doctrines recovered at the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers. That was, by the way, God's intention with the nation Israel. Exodus chapter 19, God says to them, I'll make you a kingdom of priests, all of you. The sons of Levi and more, but they failed in in their covenant commitment to God, and God cuts them off. But what does God do in the church? He makes us a kingdom of priests to his God. He purifies for himself an entire priesthood. And so if you're in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. You are a priest to God. That's pretty neat, because when I was about five, I wanted to be a priest. I was raised Catholic, and I found out they couldn't get married, and I thought, forget that idea. Even at five, I knew I wanted to be married. In Christ, you're a priest. Access to God. Access to God. And you have a great high priest. And what does Jesus do? He comes as that refining fire and purifies for himself the sons of Levi and creates the priesthood of all believers. And then verse 4, the offering will then become pleasing to Yahweh. Notice, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The idea here is that the offering will be pleasing to God. That is, true worship will be restored. True worship in spirit and in truth will be restored. The very idea comes into the New Testament like this. In light of the mercies of God, brethren... Present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is pleasing and acceptable and is your reasonable service of worship. 
And so the very idea now is that we are offering up sacrifices to God, not sacrifices for the propitiation of our sins. That has been done once and for all through the Lord Jesus Christ. But now we're offering up sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. We are now a spiritual house offering up sacrifices, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. We are now offering up ourselves as living sacrifices to God, and Jesus restores true worship. Notice it says, as in the days of old and as in the former years. The idea is that worship has been restored in the true temple, in spirit and in truth, done according to the word of the Lord, just like it was done in the beginning under Moses as he established the tabernacle. But now the true tabernacle has come, and we're the true temple. And the Spirit of God resides in us individually and collectively, and now we're a spiritual house offering up spiritual sacrifice to God. And so contrary to what the people complain about in verse 17, the God of justice is not asleep at the wheel. He delayed judgment. But delaying judgment doesn't mean that the God of justice is asleep at the wheel. It means that he's a God of mercy too. And he sent a messenger to prepare a people for the coming king and the coming kingdom. He sent one who would indeed judge the nations. But in his first advent, he comes to do what? To establish a new covenant wherein we can be forgiven of our sins. Have God's law written on our hearts. He came to purify us from our sins. To cleanse us from our sins. And to prepare us as a people for God's own possession. As you think about that little helpless baby in Bethlehem. Born of the virgin. Virgin Mary, as you think about that manger scene, as you think about the nativity, realize that God's purpose for that child in that manger was not simply to be an object of admiration once a year, but was to send his son into the world to die for his people so that we would be purified and cleansed from our sins so that we could belong to God and live in communion with God forever and ever. And that's what Christmas is all about. The good thing is, in our passage, instead of God giving the people what they claimed they wanted in their self-deluded state, He gave them and us what we need. A Savior, a mediator, a better covenant, cleansing from sin, an iniquity-purifying Savior. Aren't you glad that God gives us what we need, what we truly need, and not what we say we want? Here are these people that are completely self-deluded. Where's the God of justice? And they don't even realize that if the God of justice were to appear in the way that they think he should appear, that they themselves would become eternal cannon fodder. And so God gives them what they need, not what they ask And so what's the message of Malachi? Don't avoid the refiner's fire. What do we tell our kids? Don't play with fire. Don't play with fire. Fire's not something to mess around with. You don't take it lightly. It's serious. Christ is serious. 
He is the refiner's fire. Don't treat him tritely. He is the launderer's lie. He has come into this world to purify us. He did not come into this world to save us so that we could continue to live in our sin. He came to save us in order to separate us from our sin. Just as the refiner's fire separates the dross from the gold or from the silver, just as the launderer's lie separates the dirt and grime from the valuable cloth, so Jesus comes into this world to separate us from our sin, to cleanse us, to make us new people. Do not resist the refiner's fire. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's serious. But it's what we need, and it's what he came into the world to do. Purified people for his own possession, who would worship him in the beauty of holiness. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. Receive it. Receive him. Embrace his refining work as painful as it may be, as uncomfortable as it may be. And as you do, you will find that in him there is life and light and joy beyond anything you could imagine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord who has come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant, even Jesus our Lord. And Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to the work of Jesus, that you would open us to what he has come into this world to do. And Father, we ask even tonight that you might cause us to to dwell, to think deeply, about the refining work of Christ in our own lives. Father, thank you for sending your Son into this world. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.